Hello and welcome to This Indian Life, produced by WBEZ Chicago. This is your host, Ira Glass. Each week, we of course pick a theme and bring you a story centered on that theme. For this week's theme, Indian Independence. In today's episode, we will look at two Indian figures, Mahatmas Gandhi and M.N. Roy. We will look at their differing ideas of independence and their goals for India as a nation. On what areas did the two agree on? How did they differ? What even is independence? What role does religion play? Nationalism? Western influence? Today's show will be broken up into three acts. Act 1, Gandhi. Act 2, M.N. Roy. Act 3, Who the Heck Knows Best, where we consult Indian historian and self-proclaimed expert Katie Johnson. All this and more, stay with us. We have now arrived at Act 1 of our show, Act 1, Gandhi. So, Gandhi, I, I bring you here today to talk about your book, Hind Swaraj. Am I, am I pronouncing that right? Uh, uh yeah, um, that, that's, that's pretty close. You're, you're probably not gonna get it. Oh, uh, uh, alright. Um, anyway, would you like to tell us some of the major ideas from your book? Yeah, well, so I would say some of the major focal points of Indian nationalism. There's really two. Uh, one, Swara, Swar, Swar, Swaraj. I see. I can't even get it. And Satyagraha. I think where we should begin is what exactly is Swaraj? Well, in its most simple terms, it is Indian self-rule and self-government, but is much more layered than that. Swaraj requires the total removal of foreign dependence and influence, in this case by the English. Why can't India become independent while maintaining British institutions? Well, India can only be free if it is totally free. She cannot pick and choose the aspects of British rule she likes. The Indian people need to return to the agrarian village lifestyle of the days before the English. As said, so eloquently in my book on page 42. You want English rule without the Englishman. You want the tiger's nature, but not the tiger. But that is to say, you would make India English. I believe that India must go back to its roots and be fully Indian. Well, what is so wrong with the English? Forgive me, but did they not bring commerce, industry, and the beloved railroad? Ira, don't even get me started on those darn railroads. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) they are inflicted by the disease of modern civilization. Well, what is so bad about civilization, you may ask? Well, let me tell you. It becomes the accepted method of how to run a nation. 
Its citizens write about its greatness, and few challenge its supposed innate good. Civilization hypnotizes its citizens into believing that for a nation to be good, it must be civilized. What then does it mean to be civilized? The height of civilization is the total adoption of machinery. Through industrialization, modern civilization has introduced a new form of slavery, where workers are treated like beasts and enslaved by the, quote, temptation of money and of the luxuries that money can buy, quote, seen on page 48. It seems we have a fairly good understanding of what Swaraj is. Would you care to explain what Satyagraha is? Well, Satyagraha is first the denial of the Machiavellian notion that the ends justify the means. What is documented in the historical record is oft, are often instances of brute force. Mankind has accepted that others can be coerced by force, thus force is used. But I argue that, quote, history is a record of an interruption of the course of nature, soul force being natural, is not noted in history, end quote. This is why brute force has appeared to be the more popular method, because it is the only documented method. But I believe that passive resistance is the natural method of resistance for India. The ruling power is powerless if the masses do not cooperate with the ruler's commands. For one to master Satyagraha, they must have both a strong body and soul. Their, bodies, their body must be strong in the virtues of chastity, poverty, truth, and fearlessness. But even more importantly than bodily strength is strength of the mind. Quote, control over the mind is alone necessary, and when that is attained, man is free like the king of the forest, and his very glance withers the enemy. End quote. Page 104. Control over the body and soul is necessary because pacifers Quote, passive resistance is a method of securing rights by personal suffering. End quote, page 101. Satyagraha requires that the means justify the ends and is rooted on the participants' complete willingness to sacrifice both body and soul. It looks like it's about time for another word from our sponsor. Do you or a loved one experience the effects of colonization? Have the British personally victimized you? Do you suffer from colonization of the mind? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then the new medication, Independence, may be right for you. Side effects may include partition, irritable Churchill syndrome, and in some not-so-rare cases, even death. Talk to your doctor today, or don't if you're Gandhi, to see if independence is the right choice for you. Together, we can all be free. arrived at Act 2 of our podcast, M.N. Roy. How would you say your beliefs of Indian independence compare to Gandhi's? Well, 
Ira, why don't I start with our similarities? First off, I agree that independence for India is the only proper step for India. All Indian nationalists are, quote, united in one opinion, namely that foreign domination has caused innumerable injuries to the Indian people, that it has kept the Indian nation in economic backwardness, indeed has ruined the country economically, quote, as seen on 26 of my writing. Though I disagree with most of Gandhiism, I do respect his call for India to become economically self-sufficient. The charka as a national symbol calls upon Indians to denounce British goods and embrace Swadeshi. But I do have some contentions with this, mainly how Gandhi has tied Swadeshi to his religious views of nonviolence. The issue with Gandhiism is that it is an all or nothing package. If you take the good parts, you also sign up for the religious idealism, idealism that goes with it too. Well, Roy, it, it seems you forgot one other similarity. The resemblance to Gandhi's voice is just uncanny. Yeah, we get that a lot. It, it makes interviews like these kind of confusing. Uh, luckily, the producer of your show brilliantly broke it into different acts, so this issue could be avoided. It sounds like you disagree with a lot of Gandhi's beliefs. Discuss some of these disagreements. Well, Gandhi believes that Gandhiism is equivalent to nationalism, but if anything, they are polar opposites. Gandhi's form of nationalism often took after fascist nationalism. Fascism was rooted in the belief that the interests of the nation outweighed the interests of the individual. Gandhi desired an Indian nation where people saw themselves as Indians first and identified second by their religion, class, culture, race, etc., Gandhi further took after fascist nationalism through his unyielding protection of the class system. In an interview, Gandhi defended the price princes and landlords, saying he was determined to protect them by, quote, all means should ever any attempt be made to confiscate their property with violence. This is the essence of fascism, to defend established order of class of class domination through the instrument of an open dictatorship when parliamentary democracy fails to do so, quote. So is nationalism a bad thing for India then? No, no, not at all. If anything, it is a vital component of any revolution. My fear with Gandhiism was how this form of nationalism is so eerily similar to fascist nationalism. Gandhiism rests on the assumption that all of India is anti-imperialist, but if that were the case, imperialism would have been ushered out long ago. The reality is that, quote, the upper classes of Indian society either have already come or are coming or can come to the term, to terms with imperialism on the basis of an understanding regarding the common exploitation of the Indian masses, quote, page 81. The upper echelons of Indian society have created a codependent relationship with imperialism that has cast out the voices of the masses. Quote, the overthrow of imperialism is not only necessary for the political liberation of our country, but also for liberating the Indian masses from exploitation by the native upper classes. Looked at from this point of view, nationalism in India reveals its revolutionary character and cannot be regarded as, as antagonistic to socialism. Quote, page 82. Whoa, 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 socialism. I did not sign up to talk to some commie. 
producer, let's get this guy out of here. Um, it, it, it's just us. I, I, I mean, I, I can go, I, I guess. No, no. Where are the Dolis brothers when you need them? Anyway, Roy, why don't you try to redeem yourself? So why I think we need socialism in India is because of the need to mechanize industry. Sure, Charka is a great economic boycott, but is it a sustainable source of revenue? I don't think so. Quote, once India will have attained freedom, the Charka will have no place except in the huts of some old people or in the museum. If village industry cannot compete with the products of machine industries situated thousands of miles away, how can it compete with Indian factories, which will grow in every town and in the neighborhood of all the villages? Quote, page 104. The fact of the matter is that the world is and has been industrializing. Do we want to be behind the world once we reach independence or have a viable source of revenue? Quote, when the peasants see that with the aid of machinery, land can be made to yield more fruit, they will naturally want to be so benefited. Quote, pages 105 and 106. Gandhi would simply transition private property of the British into the hands of the Indian elite. Socialism would put industry in the hands of the state where all could reap the benefits. Well, I must say, you, you do bring up some very interesting points, Roy. I think that's all the time we have for you. Thank you. Thank you, Ira. And now, a word from our sponsor. Are you a professor at the University of Northern Colorado? Do you currently feel bogged down by the weight of grading students' papers? Do you identify as Mike or teens? Well, if you answered yes to any of these questions, do we have the product for you? Introducing the hottest new item, give Katie Johnson an A. With this simple product, you do just exactly that. You give her an A. By giving Katie Johnson an A, you have more time to focus and be nitty gritty on other students' projects. Give Katie Johnson an A. A minuses will not be accepted. arrive at our last segment, Act 3. I forgot what I titled this act, but here we have Katie Johnson. Thank you, Ira. It, it, it is truly an honor to be here. Well, interesting. You, as well as Gandhi and Roy, all have very similar qualities in your voice. Um... You know, I really, I have no explanation for that. That must be a wild coincidence. Um, but anyway, I believe you've asked me here today to analyze which model of independence is the best for India. One of my major issues with Gandhi is his idealism, especially on the issue of the religious dissent between Muslims and Hindus. I do agree that the British exploited religious disagreements as part of their divide and rule tactics, 
But on the issue of how Muslims and Hindus will coexist after independence, Gandhi idealistically looked to the past for guidance. He stated, quote, pray remember this too, that we did not cease to fight only after British occupation. The Hindus flourished under Muslim sovereigns and Muslims under the Hindu, end quote, page 67 of Gandhi. Perhaps such a peaceful coexistence did exist, but Gandhi failed to recognize how the British pinned the two religious groups against each other. This division will not simply go away. Efforts must be made to repair these relations. Gandhi should have ensured there was room for Muslim interests within the INC, but Gandhiism was targeted to a specifically Hindu audience with its nonviolence message. Gandhi further minimized the issue in his book by saying, quote, Is the God of the Mohammedan different from the God of the Hindu? Religions are different roads converging to the same point. What does it matter that we take different roads so long as we reach the same goal? End quote. I think this outlook brashly overlooks the differences between these two religions and is a poor attempt of a call for religious unity. I won't attempt to go into a theological debate, but do these two religions believe in the same God or the same endpoint? If all religions believed in the same God and the same general notion of a heaven, then why are there so many different religions in the world and so many different wars based upon religion? Theological questions aside, Gandhiism was based on Hindu spiritualism and failed to include Muslim populations. Gandhi's outlook attempts to minimize these religious differences. Tell me then, how did religion fit into Roy's idea of independence? Well, on the other hand, Roy is overly harsh of the religious aspect of Gandhi's movement. He said, quote, The so-called spiritualist outlook of life will never lead us to political freedom. We cannot be satisfied to live as slaves on this earth in order to be happy in some imaginary heaven beyond this world of ours, end quote. Whether or not nonviolence is the proper method for independence is besides the point, but looking at how to effectively enact nonviolence, religion is an effective means to achieve this goal. Without religion, there would be no point in laying down one's life. Religion serves as a drive and hope for a, a reward for the suffering endured in life. Without some semblance of religion, nonviolence is kind of bleak. Many would die in their pursuit for freedom and never see any reward. This, kind, this form of nonviolence without religion would rely solely on the patriotism of those involved. That degree of nationalist zeal would be impossible to invoke, to invoke in the masses, and for the few who do possess it, their nationalism may parallel that of the fascists and spiral India onto the path of Italy or Germany. So, which then is the best independence movement? Well, Ira, that's a hard one. I feel like each form of independence is geared to a very specific group, and neither are fully inclusive. Gandhiism is great for Hindus, but not so much for the lower classes or other religious groups. Roy's socialist independence is tailored to the proletariat, but excludes religious groups. Ideally, I'd pick aspects of both, but as Roy said, quote, it is not enough to have an ideal. What is more important is to be clear about the roads that lead to that ideal, end quote, seen on page 74 of his writing. On that note, I have to go with Gandhi. Well, this is a shocking turn of events. 
From your analysis, it seemed like Gandhi was the idealistic one. But now you are saying you would pick him? Explain. You're right about that, Ira. But the sad fact of the matter is that we also have to look at how these independents would fare on the global stage. Perhaps Roy's ideologies would have fared better for India after independence, but I can't imagine the world taking kindly to India being influenced by Marxist revolutions. The rise of the Soviet Empire threatened Western ideals, and by the end of World War II, the East and West had split into a polarizing ideological war. The 20th century also saw colonialism go out of fashion, and the British were chastised by other world leaders for maintaining their iron grip on imperialism. If India wanted support from powers like the U.S., association with the Soviet Union through Roy's Marxist plans would probably not be their best plan. Instead, Gandhi's nonviolent activism flipped the script and made India appear in favor against the imperial savagery committed by Great Britain. Katie, that was truly a masterful analysis. Bravo. If this were recorded in front of a live studio audience, there would be an applause sign lining up right about now. <laughs> oh, shucks. I am just a humble student. I've learned from some of the greatest minds in history, including Dr. Fisher, Dr. Kleinfelter, Dr. Liu, Dr. Mellish, Dr. Tomlin, Dr. Haberman, not to forget Dr. Wieben, Dr. Siegel, Dr. Weiss, Dr. Welsh, Jamie Fogg, Kelly Cook, Mary Borg, and uh, I feel like I'm forgetting one. Um, oh, right, Trevor, just, just to name a few. That is all I have not learned from anyone else, especially no one by the name of Dr. Ortiz. Let me tell you, his class is a joke. <laughs> Well, thanks again for letting me be a part of this wonderful show. Well, folks, it looks like that brings today's show to an end. We hope you learned some things. If not, then you may be the omniscient Mike Ortiz. In that case, we hope you had a few laughs, but we'll also accept short releases of air that were an attempt at a laugh. This is your host, Ira Glass, with his ever-changing impersonations. From all of us here at WBEZ Chicago, till next time. <laughs> <laughs>